I mean, I tried as an Anglican, but I, it was just like a, it was a skin graft that kept mm -hmm. getting rejected. Mm -hmm. And, and I, what I realized was, you know, I was the one that needed to change. Mm -hmm. I was the one that needed to convert. Dr. Tori Balcom is the director of the Center for Family Life at Benedictine College. He served for 30 years as an Anglican pastor before coming to full communion with the Catholic Church in 2020. In February 2023, he was appointed to the Copernican Academy in Tehran, Poland. Listen in as we discuss his journey of conversion, his deep passion for the work of St. John Paul II, and the necessity of human dignity and love to reach the modern culture. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America, one conversation at a time. From our studios in Atchison, Kansas, these are the Benedictine Dialogues. All right, Tori, welcome to Benedictine Dialogues. Thank you. Yeah, good Thank to have you, you here. Yeah. yeah, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. You know, we've met here on campus a couple times, just chatting about everything you're accomplishing and everything you're doing. And so I've been really looking forward to sitting down and talking about all of that and especially your, your journey into full communion with the, the Catholic Church. But I thought maybe kind of the first question I'd ask is a little bit about your role here at, at Benedictine College. Well, I'm uh, the founding director of the Benedictine Center for Family Life, and, and the best way to think of it is in terms of concentric circles. Uh, we are focusing on Atchison, and then the Midwest, this region, and then the world. Mm -hmm. And so our, our pillar, our first pillar is uh, the rest, family restoration in Atchison, because we have a large poor population sure. here and a lot of hurting families. In the Midwest, we call it uh, family formation, helping uh, Catholics, other Christians uh, enter more fully into the sacrament of marriage and all that that means. And then uh, family exploration is really going to Poland and studying the life of John Paul II and his legacy. So that's a very, and we, so around each of those pillars, we have a number of interventions, a number of different programs, ministries that we are developing. We've developed a JP2 fellowship with students here mm -hmm. and they, they both get hands-on experience, plus they get to go to Poland, and, yeah. and then we read something of John Paul II every year. So that's pretty much in a nutshell. Those are the three. We want to help uh, restore the family, form the family, and explore the roots of the family. That's awesome. Very very John Paul II to focus yeah. in on family as the main cell of society, right? I mean, that's oh, where yeah, so yeah. much of the reparation is going to come from, of our, yeah. of our culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, let's get into your journey. You know, tell me a little bit about um, your faith life growing up. Um, you know, what was the kind of initial genesis of, of your love of Jesus Christ and go from there maybe? Yeah, well, Jared, I, I uh, like a lot of uh, young people in America now, though it was more unusual in the early 60s, my parents divorced and, and when your, your, your family shatters uh, as a child, Often, uh, your grandparents have an outsized role in your upbringing. Mm -hmm. That was true mm -hmm. for me. Uh, my maternal grandfather and my paternal grandmother were very influential. My uh, maternal grandfather uh, was a Quaker farmer in central Kansas, okay. in, in Stafford, Kansas. And I spent, my brother and I spent our summers with him. And I knew it was special at the time as I got older. It, it, the, the specialness of it was even more pronounced because sure. he, he was kind of a Wendell Berry kind of character, really yeah. a sage, uh, uh, kind of lived off the, the, you know, the fast track of American society. Mm -hmm. He always farmed 180 acres. He had the whole, the same tractor the whole time <laughs> it was with him. And so he just lived a very simple, humble life and it, it made a big imprint on my soul. Uh, I, I, I was virtually unchurched until I was in high school, but okay. so. But he was a big influence. My my uh, paternal grandmother. She had ten children. She wasn't Catholic. Wow. She she was old school Baptist. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she was a, what I call a, a salty saint, um, and had a huge influence. And I think prayed me into the kingdom of God. Um, I moved to Texas when I was a teenager from Kansas and started going to an interdenominational youth group. But if you've ever been in Texas, you realize that, you know, everybody's Baptist in Texas. Oh, yeah. You know, even right. the Catholics are Baptist in Texas. So, <laughs> in fact, my first girlfriend was a Roman Catholic, very devout. We kind of came to, up together in this youth group and she ended up becoming a, a Wycliffe Bible translator and I ended up becoming a, an Episcopal priest. Okay. And we're still dear friends and we keep in touch. But. Yeah. Uh, but if you've seen the movie um, 
the Jesus Revolution, mm -hmm. the tail end of that, you know, swept into Texas, and uh, a singer by the name of uh, Keith Green mm. moved to a town in East Texas called Lindell, and he there was a, a British holiness preacher by the name of Leonard Ravenhill who had a big influence on Keith Green, and and then a lot of us young people would go there. Mm -hmm. uh, my my girlfriend was in Nacogdoches, Texas at Stephen F. Austin, and I was in Dallas, and we would meet in Lindale sometimes. And so it was that environment that really, uh, I, I mean, I really encountered the resurrected Christ as a young man, and it was uh, very influential, obviously, and in many ways it never left me. He, yeah. never, he never left me. Yeah. yeah. So what was your journey then into Episcopalianism? Well, uh, when I was, I was not a good Baptist. I, I read a lot of Anglicans at the time, not really knowing, I didn't read them because they were Anglicans, but you know, the C.S. Lewis, Chetterton, sure. who converted, but I read a lot of his Anglican stuff and I read others and <clears throat> I just realized that I, it resonated deeply with me. So I went to an Episcopal church service and I, again, I met the resurrected Christ there. I, you know, I, I think there's a deficiency in their understanding of the Eucharist, but they get as close as, as it's possible for a Protestant. Sure. And uh, I, uh, but it was, it, was, it was real, it was genuine. And so I transferred, I was um, in a Baptist school, I went to a, an Episcopal seminary, I, and uh, I got confirmed when I graduated. Okay. And, and then I went to Little Rock to serve a, a parish down there and, and had a beautiful five years with a wonderful mentor. And, but all along, I'm still on the journey. And it was when I, I moved back to Kansas City, my boyhood home in my early 30s. I met Elizabeth, who became my wife. We started our family. And it was about that time the, uh, the first uh, bishop, high-ranking official, uh, divorced his wife, married a man. Mm. And there was a big conversation about it, and the, the bishops came back and said, after committee work, well, he shouldn't have done it, violated canons, but there's no core doctrine mm. of marriage in the Episcopal Church. And I remember looking at my young wife, you know, and I, I didn't marry until I was in my 30s, mm -hmm. well into my 30s, and there was a long journey of healing and recovery to even know what a family was. And sure. I looked at her and I said, this can't be true. This didn't pass the smell test. There's no core doctrine in our tradition about marriage. And mm. Well, after many years, I found out they were actually telling the truth, and that was part of the problem. Mm. And that was part of what was lost in the Reformation, that they weren't lying <laughs> like I thought they were. I thought sure. they were just making stuff up, you know, um, as liberals are wont to do sometimes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but, but that, it was at that point that somebody handed me a book by this youngish Polish pope. Mm. Uh, and he, they said, you know, you ought to read this. And well, I read it, The Crossing the Threshold of Hope. And I, I crossed uh, an epistemological threshold. Mm -hmm. I thought, uh, this is mesmerizing. I, I knew I only was probably getting about half of it because I didn't have the categories to understand everything he was talking mm -hmm. about. I had no background in personalism, Thomism. Sure. You know, these are the categories he, he processes reality through. And, and so I, but it started me on a journey of reading him over the next 20 years. Uh, as I say, he, he got inside my head. I couldn't get him out. Uh, I, sometimes uh, Elizabeth would be walking through the living room and I'm in the reading chair and I've had a tear coming down my cheek and she said, oh, you're reading John Paul II. And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, he, and that led me to going to Poland. I mean, I went to uh, Rome. Uh, I had a crisis in my Anglican parish or, or uh, sexuality, sexual mis misconduct uh, with clergy and bishops covering it up and I was really distraught I didn't know where to go for help and and a friend of mine said you need to go visit Don Renzo Benetti uh, mm. in, in in Rome so as I told my friend Paul Scalia father Paul Scalia I said you know when you're an Anglican priest and you get on a plane and go to Rome for help you know you're in trouble <laughs> so, but that's what I did you know wow. and he was uh, a godsend I mean he really helped he not only led my wife and I into a deeper understanding of the sacrament of marriage and how to minister out of that understanding, but he really helped me to become a Catholic because that experience and then my experience, repeated experience in Poland, I realized these are the people that I, I belong with. Mm. I, I, and I, 
even said, you know, these are the people I want to die with. You know, yeah. I, I love their faith. I love the way they live it. Yeah. This is how I'm trying to live, which was not really, I wasn't able to pull it off. I mean, I tried as an Anglican, but I, it was just like, a, you know, it was like it was, it was a skin graft that kept mm. getting rejected. Mm-hmm. And, and that what I realized was, you know, I was the one that needed to change. Mm. I was the one that needed to convert. And so uh, in 2018, I went to my friend, Father Boscalia, said, I, I want to become a Catholic, but I have no idea. And I said, I don't think it's going to be a pleasant experience, sure. uh, given where I was at the time in the group of, of uh, dissident, breakaway, uh, splinter group Anglicans. I just knew that wouldn't bless them. And, and so, but I, you know, at the end of the day, I realized it was, it was the call of God. And so, you know, and Father Paul's the one who introduced me to Archbishop Nauman and Steve Minnis, and that's how I ended up coming back home, though he didn't know I was from this area uh, when he made the introductions. Uh, when I came back, I mean, I remember uh, President Minnis, my first meeting with him, I said, you know, President Minnis, I have all of these relationships, mm-hmm. European Catholics who are brilliant on marriage and the family, and I have no place to put these relationships. Mm. My denomination doesn't want them. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with them. And every initiative I start is blocked. And I said, I just want to give them away. Yeah. And he, he beautifully said, you know, come and bring it, you know, that's and, awesome. and that's, that's how I ended up here. And that's, that's what I've been doing ever since is I've been bringing it, you know, and, yeah. and God's blessing has been on it. And uh, which is a confirmation that I, I was discerning correctly, that there's a really good DNA match with me and Benedictine. Yes. I, I love the spirit of this place, yes. you know. Yes. I tell people it's orthodox, but there's no chip on the shoulder. Yes, people aren't yes. angry. Just there's a confidence, you know. Yeah, we know what the Catholic faith is. We believe it. Yeah, we know not everybody does, but we believe it. We want to live it, and yep. uh, yeah, that's what I like. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So along the way, you end up one with a doctorate. So you're studying during that time, um, and then also you end up at, at Canterbury. Yeah. Maybe, maybe tell me a little bit about those two things along the way. Well, you know, while I was working on my doctorate, which was at Asbury Seminary, which is a Methodist seminary, Wesleyan seminary, and uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, for two reasons. One, the, my, my PhD in intercultural theology uh, taught me how to reason contextually, and mm. so I studied cultural anthropology and historical theology, and, and I had some great professors that walked with me, and, uh, and, and then there was a an old Methodist sage by the name of Dennis Kenlaw, who would, would tell you that the most influential theologian in his life, in his la- latter years, was John Paul II. Wow. So we met, like he and I, just like once every three months, just to read John Paul II. I mean, we'd read and then we'd come together to discuss. So that's where I started reading a lot of John Paul II, and uh, which again was preparing me. Mm-hmm. At that time, I wasn't really thinking about becoming Catholic, and I still wanted to give Anglicanism a go, and so I got called to this parish that was leaving the Episcopal Church. I was I was kind of outside of the Episcopal Church for about 10 years. I mean, I, I worked part-time in a parish, but I wasn't leading anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was <clears throat> doing some work for an evangelization ministry called Alpha, and I, I served with them internationally and in the Anglican priest by the name of Sandy Miller and Nikki Gumbel really were dear friends. And so it gave me a lot of uh, exposure uh, internationally. Uh, and uh, so I got called to this church. And uh, yeah, I, I, kept, uh, I kept on these paths. I kept doing the Alpha thing, kept doing marriage ministry. And, uh, and then uh, the uh, new Archbishop of Canterbury, I came on his horizon because I was doing some peacemaking with the Episcopalians, which was a good news, bad news situation. The good news was that the New York Times did a story on it because they were very intrigued because uh, we were the only church, that, the only Anglican slash breakaway church that left and got to retain its building. Mm-hmm. At least at that time, we were a pioneer. And that made a lot of angry conservatives angry sure. at me because they thought I was compromising, which I wasn't. I just, you know, I just made peace. And so the, the New York Times did a story on it. Archbishop, he saw all that, and he, you know, he learned about what I was doing because he was also from the Alpha Tribe. He's mm-hmm. from HTB, Justin Wally. And so he uh, he nominated me and the chapter at Canterbury Cathedral 
uh, made me a sixth preacher, which is there's six of us around the Anglican communion who basically have a license to preach anywhere the Archbishop of Canterbury does. Okay. And, uh, and then we're to preach every year at the cathedral, the mother church. And mm -hmm. so it's a great honor, you know, yeah. no money, just, sure. <laughs> just the honor. <laughs> sure. And, uh, but also more exposure and gave me more opportunities in Europe. Uh, it, you know, opened some doors, uh, but, you know, really, to be honest with you, the whole time I was really seeking, uh, not just for the church, but for my own soul, uh, a proper understanding and experience of the sacrament of marriage. That was really mm. the thing, going all the way back to my childhood, you yeah, know, and yeah. the, the shattering of my family and wanting to know what makes the bond strong, what keeps mm. it strong, mm. what protects it, how can you build a community like that? That's really was my obsession, and I was trying to figure it out. And, and then, you know, I finally did, and the shock was uh, it was becoming Catholic, and that's not yeah. what I thought I would find out, you sure. know. But <laughs> once I did, I remember I said this to Father Paul Scalia, I said, you know, what I concluded was the Catholic Church was telling the truth, mm -hmm. which is not the same thing that saying every Catholic tells the truth, sure. <laughs> or that the Catholic Church at every moment tells, you know, we know history well enough mm -hmm. to know. But when it comes to settled conviction, yes, as a as a communion, we tell the truth. Yes. So sometimes it takes a while to get there, yes. you know, and there's lots of bumps and curves along the way. But that's what I came to believe. And then that once I came to believe that, the, the other decisions, the personal decisions were easy. At least easy in the sense that I, I knew in my mind and heart what I needed to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Practically, it wasn't easy. Sure. I would imagine that path of understanding the church's teaching on marriage and family is going to continue to be a major aspect of people becoming Catholic in the next many years, given the confusion around marriage. And it just gets more and more confusing and how many denominations are abdicating towards what the secular culture is pushing. Um, do you see more and more of that, of people coming into the church because they see the brokenness? They see that when marriage breaks down, so does society, so does, and that Christianity at its core has to have certain tenets of truth, especially in that relationship uh, there. Yeah, uh, Father Luis Granados at Family Week last week, he and I had this conversation before he, he said this, but you know, I, you know, in the early centuries, the church was debating, um, you know, the nature of God. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you have monotheism and then yet worship Jesus? Mm -hmm. You know, so they had to figure out what does the Trinity mean. And uh, major issues like that, it takes a few centuries to sort mm -hmm. out, but the church sorts it out, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the 16th century, uh, the issue was. Protestants would say soteriology, mm -hmm. how does one write with God? Catholics would say the ministry of the church, you know. Uh, they're both true. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that, we've been embroiled in that for the last few hundred years. Yes. Right? But I think the, the, the big debate now, and, and I think way past our lifetimes, will be anthropology. Yeah. What does it mean to be a human being? You know, what does it mean to be a human being made in God's image, it's male and female? Mm -hmm. That's what's up for grabs right now. Mm -hmm. And we need a council on it. And I think when we're ready for it, God will let us have one, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it's a great question, Jared, because uh, I think it, I think a lot of people will come into the church like I did uh, through its teaching on anthropology. Yeah. That's already happening, yeah. you know. So many professors at the JP2 Institutes are converted Protestants. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know they're personal friends. So I know these stories. And uh, it's not at all surprising to me. That's how I came in. Yes. Um, but uh, other people are doing it uh, in other ways that I, I think God honors. Uh, my friend Tim Tennant at Asbury Seminary, he's written a Protestant theology of the body. Mm. I mean, he, he taught through JP2's catechesis on marriage, and then he wrote his own book yeah. uh, that Zondervan published. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I think it'd be good for Catholics to read it because it, it would show them uh, how to communicate our treasure in language that the average American can get. Yes. You know, so in some ways we need each other. You know, I, I don't feel at all triumphalistic about my conversion. I think it's all of grace. I don't, I mean, 
if push come to shove, I'd say, yeah, I would like for all the Protestants to become Catholics. Sure. But I think also right now, this is a season to be humble and say, you know, we need each other. Mm-hmm. Let's let's learn the truth together. We're not, uh, you know, we don't, we're not attractive to the world when we beat each other up, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say that with my, you know, former denomination, uh, what is called the Anglican Church of North America. A lot of beautiful people. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the bishops there are some of the finest Christians I know. Better Christians than me. I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the leadership, not so much. Uh, sure. they, they've been very wounded, and they're, and they're acting out of a spirit that's not the spirit of Christ. But I have to look at what's best mm-hmm. and, and speak into that and appeal to that. Because I know certainly in my former congregation and in uh, other communities that I know of, they're looking for the things that we have. Mm-hmm. They really are. And so, you know, my spirit is keep my hands open, yes. you know, you know, come let us reason together. Yes. Thus says the Lord. Um, and let us walk together as, as far as we can. Yes. And uh, so I'm, I'm, ta- I'm saying more than, than you probably wanted to hear. I, cause I, I definitely want to affirm, yeah, people, Protestants will become Catholic. But a lot of Protestants won't, and that's okay too, because we can we can work together. And you know, to me, it's like if we're conversion seldom happens when you go like this, because mm-hmm. there's too many issues. But if you can go like this mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. say, let's walk up to this pinnacle together, because yes. we both have our eyes on this, we want to know the truth. Yes. You know, that will bring us closer together, and that will reconcile us. Yes, I think it's it's interesting too. Um, so my family many generations in Texas and all Catholics. And so understanding. <laughs> That's why you laugh when I said <laughs> Yes, exactly. Because I totally understand what that means. Um, and, it, and it's been interesting seeing even the change from, say, my grandfather's age and my father's age, where Catholics and Baptists would kind of chide each other and, you know, argue with each other a lot. Whereas now it's become far more, guys, the secular thing is now this rising tide that Christian principles, just in general, are being attacked on all sides. So for us to constantly be boxing with each other, we're losing that battle, the much bigger battle, um, that has been happening over the past 70, 80 years, 90 years, maybe even longer than that. But now it's just so profound, pushing back against Christian principles, that you're right. I mean, there's the, there's a, a teamwork necessity now that we need to come together, especially agreeing on anthropology is such a huge decision that needs to be made amongst Catholics and Protestants and, and the like. Um, and that gets into some of your other experiences that you had at Canterbury, doing some a lot of interreligious uh, dialogue, a lot of interreligious communication. What was that like? Um, what were some of the things maybe you learned through that process? Well, you know, um, my daughter's going to take that into a whole new uh, dimension that I haven't even gone into uh, because of her field of study and her marriage. Um, You know, listen, it's very simple. One is uh, try to be curious and not as judgmental. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have a a healthy... uh, confidence in God's providence or what Wesleyans call prevenient grace. Mm. You know, God goes before and God is preparing all people uh, for himself. Uh, And so, you know, engage these, the religious other as, uh, I mean, this is how I like to do it, as a pre-Christian, somebody Mm -hmm. who's moving in the direction of Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. And my job is to help them to take the next right step, mm-hmm. or at the very least, not block it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, to me, I, I, I think it's, I mean, I, it sounds trite to say this, but we have to learn how to love people. Yes. <laughs> love them, you know? I mean, you can't just wipe off a billion people. Yes. I'm talking about Muslims and say, oh, they don't. Right. You know, complete zone of darkness. I don't believe that. I never have believed that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been in circles that do believe that. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the same circles believe the same thing about Catholics, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been around a lot of people that is still engage in 16th century hate speech, you know. Yes. You know, the church is the, the whore of Babylon, false teachers, da-da-da-da-da. Sure. Do the same thing with Muslims. I just don't think that's the way to go. Yeah. 
I'm a big fan of Miroslav Volf. You know, he wrote a book, is you know, is Allah God or I can't remember something like that. But basically, arguing that you know, uh, Christians and Muslims do worship the same God. They have the same subject but different predicates. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. I think it needs some nuancing, you know. But uh, but he grew up. Uh, in Slavic countries. I don't know if you know Miroslavov, but he teaches at Yale and hmm. his daddy was a Pentecostal preacher and his daddy taught him to love Muslims yep. you know, in a community where they, you know, they eventually killed each other. Yeah. You know? And so a big part of his theological project has been to think through all of that and, and write books that help Christians maintain a, a strong, distinct Christological identity, but also a generosity mm -hmm. towards Muslims and others. I'm pretty much in that camp. Yeah, That's kind of how yeah. I come at it. Um, so, yeah, which is uh, again very JP two, right? Oh, totally JP two. <laughs> That's why I, I feel so much at home. He he was putting everything together for me: the anthropology, the Christology, the ecclesiology, the the you know the interdenominational, the intra-denominational mm -hmm. and religious relationships he was totally you know he had that big peace conference in Assisi yes. there towards the end of his pontificate and of course uh, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have continued that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean this is a big reason I became Catholic you know because yeah. Catholics for the whole world yes. you know we're not sectarian or not yes. Yes. you know uh, we don't feel like we have a corner on the truth. But I, I do think what we do have a corner on is that we work harder at unity, human unity, the human community, and the unity of the church. We work harder on that than just about anybody I've ever met. Yes. And I love that. Yes. Have you ever desired a deeper understanding of the life of Jesus? Check out The Extraordinary Story with Tom Hoops. This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. The Extraordinary Story has been featured in The Loop, Alatea, Our Sunday Visitor, and Relevant Radio. You can listen to The Extraordinary Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, back to the show. So you've mentioned um, JP2's anthropology a couple of times, and maybe some of our, our listeners aren't quite as familiar uh, with what we mean by that. Could you give maybe, uh, I know it's a, a big, broad subject, <laughs> uh, but maybe just kind of a brief synopsis of, of what you mean by that, um, because I think that will help kind of uh, solidify your understanding of marriage and family and, and all of that? Well, you know, in his catechesis on marriage and family, you know, he, he, he camps in a couple of biblical texts uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of mm -hmm. man and woman uh, in his image. And this is in a Trinitarian image. So at the heart of God is love and at the heart of love is relationships to the other. And that's why God could love before there was a creation, because he loved within himself. Mm -hmm. There was another there. And that we are made in that image. We're made for the other. We're made to love the other. And um, that's why man wasn't complete until Adam wasn't complete until Eve was made. Mm -hmm. So to be a person for John Paul II is to be incomplete. It's to be made for the other. Yes. And it's to find oneself in the giving of oneself as a pure gift to the other. This is this is his kind of language. And so you see that in Genesis, and he expounds that with great depth and beauty. Mm -hmm. um, I was a budding Hebraist as a young man, so I spent a lot of time in the biblical languages. And that, you know, I could, I could keep up with him on the exegesis part, but then he went into this kind of phenomenological analysis, mm -hmm. and I go, wow, this is like a whole new dimension of, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of what these texts are about, you know, so... Um, then he goes to Song of Solomon, you know, the Song of Solomon is, he does an exegesis on those to kind of even deepen a little bit more about what this communion of male and female looks like and helps us to see. In fact, there's, uh, he's got this wonderful insight that, uh, 
when Adam first sees Eve and he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he, the very first words of Adam are a song, mm. he says. And it's a song in response to the woman. And this song is later picked up and developed in the Song of Songs. Yeah. So he, he bridges the Song of Solomon and Genesis 1 and 2. And you know, he's full of stuff like this because yes. you know, he's such a biblically saturated mind. Yes. That he, he sees these connections. And so the Song of Solomon is about, you know, uh, the, the, the relationship, which is, you know, psychological and moral and sexual and everything. Mm -hmm. Then he goes from that into uh, Matthew um, and uh, Jesus' teaching about divorce and that, that marriage is indissoluable, mm -hmm. you know. And they ask him, well, you know, but... But Moses permitted it. And I love, you know, it's, it's really a wonderful insight of his that Jesus didn't go back to Leviticus or Exodus and debate case law. Mm -hmm. You know, he went back to original intent. Yes. And said, yeah, but in the beginning, God made the male and female in his image. So he gives us also a, a great insight into Jesus' own hermeneutic, and which ought to be our hermeneutic. Yes. And, and so he comes back full circle to the Genesis story and Song of Solomon. Then he, of course, he ends in Ephesians 5, you know, which is this great uh, mystery that uh, Paul elaborates the, between the man and the woman, but he also says it's about Christ and the church, and you read it, and you go, okay, what is this? Is he talking about Christ and the church or man and woman? Mm -hmm. If you read the, the, the Greek, it gets a little bit tangled, and I think it's because the syntax fails him, you know, mm -hmm. that the mystery is is deeper and more profound than what Greek is able to actually uh, reveal. And because um, he comes up with saying, yeah, it's both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the marriage union. And so all of this is uh, to be made in the image of God is, is to be a person that's made for love, to, it's to be incomplete, it's to be made for, also for union. Union with God first, but also union with one another mm -hmm. in the sacrament mm -hmm. of marriage. So his anthropology is very uh, Christological. He says no one really knows themselves until they know themselves in Christ, because mm -hmm. Christ is the true meaning of every human being. Yes. Um, so I'd say his his anthropology is Christological. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, that, that's I mean that's those are just a few forays yeah, into his anthropology for sure. And each yeah. one of those I'm sure we could spend a whole oh, totally. couple of hours on. <laughs> yeah, he did. So. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, what, what drew me to JP2, particularly his theology of the body, and the idea of personalism, started off as actually, when I was a young, younger man in, in college, I was trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to be a man? You know, yeah. it just seems to me like we're given so many lies about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a man, you know, that, that we're chasing just worldly things, and yet it's not fulfilling. We all know there's a level of greatness that we're all, and excellence and, and virtuousness that we're all called to. Yeah. And the world offers us so much just piddle. And so when I read JP2, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the, the, the highest possible level of human nature that if we can live this, you know. Um, but the other side of it too was the idea of personalism in the sense of, um, and I think JP2 eventually is gonna be known as just one of the great prophets of the modern age because, and, and partially because of his experience of what was going on in Poland during his life and things. But this, this continuing growth of either we're this collective, this collectivism that happens in communist countries and, and the like, or we're this extreme individualism that happens in a lot of the West, especially in America. You've got this great you know, idea of rugged individualism and all that. And he says, yeah, it's not really either. You know, we're, we're human persons. We're made for community, but then we also have dignity as individuals. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, yeah, that's the third way. That's the third way that we're, we're supposed to navigate this kind of, and of course, a lot of it turns into political, you know, uh, uh, conversation and language. But to me, that, that just made all the sense in the world of, yeah, that's it. You know, none of us are truly individuals. We come into this world already dependent yeah, <laughs> on yeah. somebody else and already yeah. part of a collective of some kind. Um, but then yet, I'm Jared, you're Tori, we're still individuals in a sense, and we have dignity as individuals, but also have this brotherhood that, yeah. that occurs, right? I just found that so beautiful and such a great way to navigate the, yeah. cu the, cur the current political landscape. Well, my friend that I referenced earlier, Dennis Kinlaw, he, I mean, he, he, he had a wonderful way of, of finding uh, homey images to to unpack profound truth and the way he would 
explain John Paul's teaching on that is what he would call belly button theology. Mm. <laughs> and you say, take a look at your belly button. Yeah. What does it tell you? You're already dependent on something. <laughs> it, tells you, it tells you you're not self-originating. Yes. You're not self-sustaining, right? You're not self-fulfilling. You're not self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just that, exactly. just that, you know, we're, we are connected and we're dependent. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that's totally true. And of course, that totally contrary to a dominant narrative of the, of the human person in mm-hmm. our culture. Uh, yes. But even the idea of um, self-actualization, there's a lot of that going on right now. And I think at the core, there's something there of, yeah, you should live at your highest. You should fulfill the virtues. You should, you know, that is actualization. Now, the fullest sense is Christ in you actualizing yeah. through your actions, through your, you know, beliefs and, and the way you love others. Right. Um, but oftentimes it gets put as this kind of individualistic, I need to go out on my own and, you know, break the shackles of anything that I'm dependent upon and become myself. And it's like, that's actually, you're going right back into slavery whenever you do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's so rich. And, it, and as we said earlier, this is the this is the issue of the moment. This is the issue of our age that we have to, you know, help other people figure out, help ourselves to figure out and live into this, mm-hmm. all of the craziness that we're dealing with, all the unraveling in our society. It comes down to this issue. Really. Yes. <laughs> So one of the other things I wanted to chat about is you've recently been inducted into the Copernican uh, Academy in, in Poland. Right. First, tell our listeners what that is, uh, and then secondly, kind of what your role is in, in that regard. Yeah, the Copernican Academy is, is uh, it's, uh, an initiative of the government, the Polish Academy, um, maybe a little bit of the Polish church. Uh, it's made up of government officials and academics. Uh, partly, it, it, uh, by uh, the namesake, it's to honor uh, Nikolai Copernicus, mm-hmm. who was a Renaissance man. And it has six chambers, and those six chambers are six areas of specialization that he was known to have, have been very competent in, uh, physics, astronomy, uh, law, theology, philosophy. Okay. And uh, so I got elected into the uh, polit- the uh, philosophy and theology chamber. Uh, supposed to be nominated by two different people. Uh, see, I told you the story about the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in that story, uh, Michael Paulson of the New York Times asked me, okay, when you went down to see Shannon Johnston, the Bishop of Virginia, to make peace, what did you do? And I said, well, I took a book of poetry, you know, and, mm. and I found out when I got there, his dad was a poetry teacher and he loved it and it really kind of made a connection for us. And he goes, well, who was the poet? And I said, well, Adam Zagieski, the great Polish poet. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam read this New York Times story and he says, you must come to Poland. Wow. So that's how I really got to Poland. And he introduced me to all of his friends, which happened to be the left-wing intelligentsia poet. Wow. So for the next few years, I, I went back almost every year and I became friends with uh, these people and very close friends to Adam and Adam died two years ago. Yeah, about two, two and a half years ago. And, and, um, by this time I had converted and uh, of course he knew all about that. I, I, I was talking to him and my friends in Poland about it before I was in the United States. I kind of kept it on the down low in the U S and, uh, you know, he, but he handed me off to his other friends who have, have become very close and then uh, converted. I got to know the Catholic Church and I got to know people that were more right of center. And uh, and I'm friends with both. And, mm-hmm. and that certainly helped in my election to the academy. Uh, to, in all honesty, I'm not a great philosopher or theologian. I have a few gifts that, that apparently people think I understand Poland really well and I write stuff and it gets well received. And so I've had a couple of stories written about me over there, and uh, I have some insight into the domestic church. Most all of it I've learned from John Paul II, but I've also learned it some from my doctoral studies, uh, studying the early church as a domestic movement. So I've interpreted the current crisis, the fact that there are three million Ukrainian refugees and not one refugee camp, 
and they're being received into Polish homes. And I, when I was there, literally days after the invasion, I wrote an article about it. A friend of mine who teaches at the University of Warsaw translated it, and it went viral. And that's how I started getting invited back. They invited me back to speak at a Congress. That went really well. But basically, I just said, this is what John Paul II meant by a domestic church. It's mm -hmm. the family faced outward in love. They said to me, we didn't even know that's what we were doing. But now that you say it, we realize that's exactly what we're doing. And so then I tried to get at the sources of that. Where is that coming from? Because it's so unconscious. <coughs> and uh, so I wrote, I, I, I had to give a talk when I was inducted, and I, I spoke on that subject, and it got translated, and it got uh, initially published uh, in the C of E, Church of England. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they still, some of them still like me, and they publish my stuff. And uh, so, uh, it had a good audience there, and then it got published here as well. So the short answer to the question, it's Providence, Jared. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, when he first emailed me and said, you've been nominated and elected, will you serve? I said, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> I said, go back. <laughs> I'm serious, I did. Wow. I said, I don't think that, I think. <laughs> and I said, no, you're the guy, <laughs> you know. That's and funny. So and then when I got, got over there, you know, some friends, uh, some academic friends, they said, Tori, uh, I mean, he, he said, well, we function at a high level. We can't write what you write. Hmm. And uh, we said, none of us can write that. What you wrote there, no, none of us can do it. And, and you know, we wonder why. And I said, it's because you're traumatized. Hmm. I said, I got trauma. Hmm. You know, there's, uh, I was diagnosed with PSAD. Uh, hmm. Yeah post-traumatic Anglican disorder. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I, I said, I have, I, there's some things I can't write about. <laughs> and uh, he, um, he said, that's right. I said, you guys have been without a state for virtually 200 years. Yeah. You think you can just shake that off in a generation? Yeah, exactly. So when this stuff happens, you guys like, you paralyze. Yeah. And so you need buddies to come on in, come beside you and say, okay, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna walk with you. We're gonna try to help bear this burden. And, yeah. uh, and of course, when I came here, our, you know, this was the, our third pillar was to explore Poland, to uh, explore John Paul II in context. I'm a mm -hmm. contextual thinker. Mm -hmm. And what he wrote about the domestic church. So, so this was our agenda. This is why I was taking our JP2 fellows there. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I said, lo and behold, here it is on display. Wow. Everything I believe, everything I got converted for, it's going on in Poland right now. This is why I became a Catholic. This is, they live it, they, they live it, they don't even know they live it, and when you tell them, they go, oh my gosh, you're right. Which even makes it more virtuous, because yes. they don't even know they're being virtuous. Yes. They just do it, you know, and, and we, we, I mean, don't get me started on, you know, immigration reform, but, you know, there's just, uh, yeah, there's a level of charity there mm -hmm. that, and, you know, the thing of it is, Jerry, they're not all, like, devout Catholics. I mean, some of them have real issues with the church. I mean, they haven't, sure. like, left the church, but, like, you know, they can get quite upset. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, but but when it, when the push comes to shove and it's, like, really doing the Christian thing, they do it. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm -hmm. they, they have a checkered history with Ukrainians. Sure. You know? So it's not like, you know, these are my long lost relatives. I mean, for some it is, but mm -hmm. for some it's, mm -hmm. no, there's a lot of wounds there. Yeah. So it merits investigation. I think somebody in journalism ought to, you know, camp over there and really get their minds around it, write about it and win the Nobel Prize. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's, it has that importance to Western civilization, I think. Yes. And I think we're moving, I mean, my own view is that, you know, I, I have a, an ability to see around corners, unfortunately, and I think things are headed in that direction again. And Poland, because of its geopolitical mm -hmm. significance, will likely be a testing ground. Um, I pray that that's not the case, but it won't surprise me if it is. Sure.
Yeah, one of the things I, I love is we've talked about interreligious dialogue, but I, I think intercultural dialogue is very interesting of uh -huh. what is beautiful about this culture that we can kind of start to integrate here. And what that's what you're doing through the Family Life Center is right, like right. there's something happening. I mean, it, it's my understanding there, were, there was a, a tradition in Poland that if somebody comes to your door and they ask, I'm, I need some food, I need a place to stay, that there's a tradition of come on in, let's give you a, a place. And it's almost... Uh, unvirtuous or, or frowned upon if you say no, you know, whereas in the United States, it's like, what are you doing in front of my door? <laughs> you know, there's just kind of this individualism here that maybe doesn't exist there. And um, I tend to think of even in the founding fathers, you know, they, they look to Rome, they look to Greece, they look to England, they look to Jerusalem, they look to all these other cultures and try to say, what worked? And, and what can we glob off of that and make great, you know? And I, I think mm. that when we talk to other countries like Poland, that I mean, that, that to me is nothing short of a miracle. Three million refugees and not a single camp. That's unbelievable. That's a, that's a country of heroism as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, and so and learning if, from that is And so if it was important. comparable to the United States, it'd be like 30 million here. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and that's, a, that's just unthinkable. Yes. You know, it's just unthinkable. We'd have to have a total personality transplant, you know, exactly. to pull something like that off. Uh, yeah, it, it is, I, I, you know, in my talk to the Polish Academy, I, you know, I, I brought up a little bit of history that a professor at the Young Galonian said to me, you know, you taught me something I didn't even know, that uh, when Bolesław the Brave killed uh, uh, St. Stanislav, you know, there was a tussle between church and state, you know, who had the authority to appoint bishops and mm -hmm. whatnot, and he had Stanislav killed mm -hmm. while he's celebrating the mass. Well, he now he he becomes a saint to mm -hmm. the people, and so Boleslav, to get himself back into the good graces of the people, he establishes a Benedictine foundation at all the cathedrals in Poland, mm. and so of course rule. I think it's 56, says, you know, uh, monks are su supposed to receive every guest as though he's Christ. Ah, and that okay. gets sewn into the, the, the culture, the culture wow. over a thousand that. years ago. So you got a thousand years of this, and that's where the Polish, you're right. I can't remember the, how it goes in Polish, but how it goes in English is that when you have a guest under your roof, you have God under your roof. Wow. <laughs> I think it's pretty reasonable, at least I made the case, that comes from the, the Benedictine monks mm. that were, were a foundational layer of Christianity in Poland. Yeah, which brings us full circle back to Benedictine and college yeah, and what we're trying to do here. Yeah, totally right? does, exactly. totally. No, 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 it's all, it all yeah, everything comes back to Atchison, don't you know that? <laughs> exactly, exactly right, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and one last thing I kind of wanted to touch on as well is, is and we can briefly talk about it, um, is the Human Dignity uh, Project that you're you're working with Letitia. Mm. Uh, uh, remind me her last name. Downing. Downing. Um, maybe share a little bit about that project. Yeah. Well, the Human Dignity Curriculum is a curriculum that's been created by a friend of mine, Anna Halpin, who's the founder of the World Youth Alliance. And uh, it's, it's a curriculum that goes from K through 12, and it teaches students about themselves. And every other subject, they're learning about something else. But in human dignity, they learn about themselves. And what mm. they learn about themselves is that they are made uh, with innate dignity, something that no one can, that no one gives them, and therefore no one can take away. Mm -hmm. Not the state, not anybody else. And uh, it brings in some of the best thinkers uh, in world history to to develop different aspects of that. And it's beautiful, and. Uh, I became friends with Letitia. She's uh, an African-American Pentecostal woman, and she invited me to her church my first year here, which was during COVID, so I'd go to Mass, and then I'd go to the Black Pentecostal Church. Yeah. And uh, did that for a year, and then we started sending our JP2 fellows into her school just to help with the kids, and then we realized we really needed a common resource to work together with, and so I suggested Human Dignity Curriculum. She got that approved. I would have never been able to get it approved. Sure. Yeah. As I say, I'm, a, I'm an old white dude, conservative sure. old white dude. Man, we get slapped down in our sure. <laughs> But she got it through. That's awesome. And uh, and now she's going to be. She's been promoted to to be the principal of the high school. She's going to take it there. She got invited to give a testimony to the UN last last spring. Um, I think President Mena says she's the first alum, first Atchisonian to ever speak at the UN. Uh, 
she rocked the house. She's a wonderful, compelling presence and speaker. Um, so we're talking about now, if I can raise the money, uh, uh, anybody out there, if I can raise the money, uh, we're gonna take uh, our best graduates from the human dignity curriculum in the various grades uh, on a field trip to the UN. Oh, wow. So they can have a life transforming experience. And these, most of the kids we're working with come from poor homes, broken homes. Uh, but Letitia wants to, you know, extend it into all the public schools here, mm -hmm. you know, um, and uh, hopefully uh, when she becomes the Secretary of Education of Kansas, we'll yes. get it into all the schools. Uh, we're, this is just the beginning uh, awesome. of what we're doing, and it's happening here in Atchison, and it's one of the reasons I felt God calling me here. You know, I felt for a long time when I was in the D.C. area that God was saying, get off the grid, get off the grid. Mm. Because God was giving me all these wonderful resources, all these relationships that were Catholic, and I couldn't implement the stuff mm -hmm. where I was for lots of different reasons. Sure. Um, and, uh, and when I came here, I looked around and I said, this is definitely off the grid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can innovate here. Yes. Try stuff here. People will work with us here. And that's what's happening. So this curriculum, I think, is hugely important for healing a lot of what's wrong in America. That's awesome. And uh, so, yeah, pray for us. If you're watching, yes. pray for us. Pray for Letitia. She's beautiful woman of God. I'm hoping to get her on the show. Oh, so, you definitely yeah, need her on the show. You definitely need her on the show, yeah. So these are all experiments. So the Poland thing is taking off. Uh, you know, hopefully I, in a few years, I'd, I'd like to spend more time in Poland and, and establishing a campus for Benedictine there. Nice for our students, just simply because I think it, it has the potential of, of helping all of us become heroes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, heroism is transmitted by being around heroes, you yes. know? It's, and, uh, and, and then, of course, what we're doing here with the public schools and at-risk families. And then there's a whole other dimension of thing I do with, called communio, which is equipping parishes to develop ministries to families and, mm -hmm. and marriages. And we have 12 parishes that we're, we're coaching in the archdiocese with Communio. A friend of mine, J.P. DeGan, started this ministry. I think it's one of the most significant ministries in America right now. Wow. And the Archbishop, Archbishop Nauman is pioneering this in the Catholic Church. So I work closely with him in getting this into uh, Catholic parishes here in the Midwest. Then we do this thing called Family Week, and the point of Family Week is to give people a concentrated experience mm -hmm. of what a pro-marriage and family culture feels like in a parish mm -hmm. that's using it to, to reach out to the community. And of course, we doubled last year, and right now our biggest problem is, is just building up the workers and the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. we have we have more people interested than we're able to receive right now. But that's a great sign. It tells me that, you know, there's a real hunger for this. Yes. And, uh, and Archbishop Nauman, you know, he retires in a year, hopefully two years. Uh, it's just a extraordinarily amazing godly leader. Yeah. So, and he's one of the big reasons I came. I wanted to, I wanted to be with a shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, praise God. Tori, yeah. thank you for everything you do. And I'm sure I'll have you back on the show. We'll keep digging deeper into some JP2. And I hope so. Everything you're doing here at Benedictine College. So uh, to so. our listeners, I really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks again for the conversation. Jared, my friend. Thank you. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, God bless you guys and have a great day. We hope you enjoyed the Benedictine Dialogues, a production of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. To catch all the latest and support our growing platform, visit media.benedictin.edu. And be sure to recommend this show to your friends and family. Help us to transform culture in America, one conversation at a time.